and we're back. I finally got in a place where I feel comfortable, settled to get back on the podcast train. This is leaving off from April. I've been sitting on this episode, just haven't got around to editing it. I um, sat down with Nick Stanchu at Tuckerman Brewery amidst this whole COVID crisis when they had shut down. And it was a pretty dark time for for Nick and for, I think, all us small business owners with the uncertainty of what our business, you know, we had our projections, what things were supposed to look like. And then in reality, um, as you can hear in this interview with Nick, what he was facing and how he dealt with it. And it's really important to pick up the microphone in these times when things aren't easy. These are the learning moments. These are, there's a lot of things to take away. And, and from Nick, it's just his character's perseverance, um, the way he manages his employees and does everything really fair and treats everyone like family. They've been awesome supporters of everything that we do at Ski the Whites. That's Tuckerman Brewery. And then Nick's also been a participant in some of our events and, He's a customer of mine, so it's really fun to be able to sit down with him and, and share his story a little bit more behind Tuckerman Brewery because I think most of us, uh, the general public, just sees the pale ale and and they they know the the logo and that they're they're a staple in the craft beer industry. But there's a lot more to it, and we started to get in the weeds about beer brewing. So I think. There's a lot of beer connoisseurs that listen to this that would probably be interesting, interested in it. And then um, just Nick is a person, really, really intelligent, very talented. He is, he has the skill set. Um, he can do pretty much anything. If you ever get a chance, swing by Tuckerman Brewery. I'll have all the links and stuff in the notes. But um, that's uh, that's all I have to say about Nick. Enjoy this episode. And we'll be rolling out more of these in the future. We've got Nick Stanchu here, one of the co-founders of Tuckerman Brewery. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing all right, considering uh, the weather out there today and uh, current state of affairs. But yeah. we're upright and we're doing all right. Um, I, get, I, you know, I, I'd like to do an introduction on on all our guests. And I met you through the brewery here but also as a backcountry skier, sort of hiker, runner, just general out, outdoor enthusiast. Um, and it's cool to see that balance of you being a business owner, but also someone I can relate to as in, um, someone that also enjoys the same things in the White Mountains and, and getting out. You've, um, you're a pretty humble guy, and I don't think that you're one to brag about your skill set and your background. Um, but I want you just to like quickly go over that first is just talk about life before the brewery and, and sort of like what your, what your life path was looking like and how the brewery came to be about. Uh, oh, that's fair. I guess (laughs) I'm like, hopefully we'll talk about the brewery, not about me, but we, we, I can throw a little history in there. Um, for one, uh, the we started the brewery in 1998, so we've been around 20, 22 years or so now. Um, and Kirsten and myself started this. Uh, we were young in our mid-20s when we started um, Tuckerman Brewing Company. So uh, what, what we were doing before then, um, I actually was a graduate student at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico um, before we started 
this endeavor. And I originally grew up in New Hampshire, so I grew up in the Goffstown, in Goffstown, K through 12 school system. Always loved the White Mountains. Ended up going to college, and after college, ended up uh, at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And Kirsten was there as well, so um, we ended up relocating after three years and came back to the White Mountains, which has always been near and dear to my heart. And Kirsten fell in love with it as well. She's originally from Rhode Island, and uh, and that's kind of how we started things, historically speaking. Um, why the White, White Mountains? I mean, I grew up in New Hampshire, always spent time out here. Um, every chance I had was from southern New Hampshire. I came up to no, up to the White Mountains, whether it's ice climbing, rock climbing, hiking. Um, so it's it's always been near and dear to me personally. So. In a nutshell, that's why we ended up starting Tuckerman Brewing Company in Conway, New Hampshire. But was it all, I mean, you weren't always on the path to starting a brewery. Was What was the no, other options? No, for sure. So, I mean, I was doing theoretical physics at Los Alamos, which was, it's really intense stuff. Um, I really enjoyed it. In fact, the, one of the guys that I worked with, uh, Art Voter, I just actually emailed him earlier this week. Just I still t- stay in touch with him a bit. Um, but it's just, it's, uh, it's pretty intense, like anything. So um, you're in a theoretical physics, you're in a cubicle, essentially, with a lot of computers. And, you know, you're at that level, you've got to be there. You're doing it 12 hours a day. It's, 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 it's all you do. So um, I am like to be out. I was, maybe I was too young for that lifestyle. I don't know. Um, but I needed a change. So um, I'm a hands-on type of guy. So while I really enjoyed that and, and the... Uh, challenges that it presented. Um, I also need to be outside doing stuff, and I need to do stuff with my hands more directly. So uh, we just made a change, and then we ended up back here. Uh, I actually sent a resume to Wildcat Skiria for snowmaking, and they, while I was in New Mexico, I'm like, oh, I'll send my resume because I don't have a job, but we're gonna go back to New Hampshire, and uh, I, they laughed at me. They're like, we've never gotten a resume, let alone from somebody from Los Alamos National Laboratory. But so they they laughed for the the time that I made snow at Wildcat that first winter. So, but the first two winters we worked at Skiri's at Wildcat and at Attach for the first winter and at Attach the second winter and uh, scrambled with other jobs. But it was pretty pretty quickly we realized that if we're going to stay here, we're going to want to do something on our own. So, the concept of starting a brewery um, was started. And so, where did that originally that idea originally come from? When we were in New Mexico, we had some friends that owned Santa Fe Brewing Company at the time. It was a little, little tiny brewery out in uh, Galisteo, New Mexico. And we'd go down there on Mondays. It was my day off and Kirsten's day off. And we'd drink beer and got to know the people well and, and the, the, learn the concept uh, or at least apprehend the idea that you can um, make beer. And so it was fascinating. So just talk to those guys, learn a little bit each week, ask more questions, learn a bit, little bit more. So... So when we came back here, it's like, hmm, no one's doing a brewery. Maybe that's something we can pull off. So I always like to say a little bit of his being young and dumb. So we were young and dumb and had the fortitude to try something. So that's kind of how we started. That's true. And what you don't know, you know, if you knew all the work that goes into this stuff now, it might be a little bit of a hiccup. But if you're driven, if you're driven from the start, it's hard to stop that drive when you have something you start playing these seeds when I, when you started probably getting that brewery idea on a 
the, the back of a napkin. Well, you probably had a, re a, a little more detailed plan laid out knowing you, but. Yeah, but it's still, it, it, there's so much, you, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So hindsight's twenty twenty, and, uh, you know, you look back on it like, wow, we, we had no idea about this or that. And, uh, and you got to remember, this is before the age of cell phones and internet was not even really a thing at the time and not as it is now so the amount of information that was out there was very limited so it's that alone was a challenge to try to to get information there was a lot of reinventing the wheel so tell me about these early years when you're integrating in the community you're trying to get your product out there just you and kirsten starting this off and then talk about getting help and employees and that first growing stage what, what oh. went into that <laughs> Well, and, uh, and what years were those specifically? Yeah, so we, 90, we started, our first sale was January 13th, 1998, um, and we had essentially two customers. So at the time, when you, uh, a brewery had to sell through distribution, so we had two customers, uh, which were White Mountain Distributors and New Hampshire Distributors. So that was the initial challenge, was getting distribution set up before we even started brewing. So that was, the year before was obviously... Uh, setting up the brewery conceptually, getting funding and all this stuff, and also starting those relationships with distributors. So, um, and we uh, we actually had, it was a great relationship with those guys to start with, and it still is. But um, the people that we started the business with uh, and first interacted with are no longer at those distributors. They've since retired, and um, but they're really interesting people, really fascinating people. So. Um, that was probably step one, was establishing distribution. And then as we grew, we really had no idea what we're doing. So you make some beer, sell some beer, make some beer, sell some beer. Um, need an employee. Somebody comes in looking for a job, they'd come in to help. So, I mean, at the time we were using, you know, when we were packaging, we had some guys from the volunteer fire department come over and help out on a, on a volunteer basis just to take some beer home to help with, with packaging and whatnot. So it was a bit of a community effort to start with, for sure. When you're talking about um, distribution and the hurdles, I don't think that the general public knows about the difficulties of beer distribution, specifically in New Hampshire. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get hung up on that too much, but I get some of that secondhand frustration for watching you guys where you're, you know, where you're at now versus where you were then. But like as a larger but not a huge brewery. You know, you're certainly big and you're growing year over year, but getting beer to a person or getting beer to a ski resort, it's not easy. Yeah, no, it's not. And, and, and I, to preface it, I should say every state is a little different. So um, all, these, all these laws that kind of govern distribution and, and, and beverage manufacturing vary from state to state. So in New Hampshire... At the time when we started, it's what's called a three-tier system. So you'd have a manufacturer, a distributor, and then a retailer. And now that's changed a little bit. So if we were starting this business now, we would be allowed to self-distribute beer if we wanted to. At the time when we started, the licensing wasn't there for that. So um, the licensing in and of itself in 20 years has changed quite a bit. And that's part of the reason you see a lot of smaller nano-sized breweries that have just on-premise sales and maybe limited distribution that is self-distributed uh, is because the laws have changed and they've evolved over time. And I, I think it's a good thing for sure. It's definitely helped the industry. So, I mean, when we started, there were a handful of breweries in New Hampshire and now there's maybe 90. Who else were some of the big ones back then? 
So uh, Nutfield was a brewery at the time that was still running. Smutty Nose was around. Uh, Woodstock Station had just started. Um, Elm City started a little bit after us. Moat started a little bit after us, but but same general time frame. Um, that's you know, there weren't too many, and like I said, now I think there's around 90 in New Hampshire, and I. People are like, oh, have you been to this brewery? Like, no, I haven't been to this brewery at all. You know, it's just there's so many now, and it's it's good. I mean, it's the the concept of having a small brewery where you can go in and they manufacture the beer, and you you have it either on site or can take some home. That's fantastic. It's kind of like old school pubs in in England, I I guess from what I've read. So um, it's sustainable for those people. It's still a lot of work, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, it's, making beer is a labor of love. It's, you wouldn't put this amount of labor into making an oil filter, for example. You've got to enjoy the end product. So, and you've got to be happy about what you make and, and what it represents. And I think the communal aspect of what we do is really uh, exciting. And that's what's, one thing that has changed for us over the years is just the um, integration of the tasting room and the development of the tasting room uh, in our community. So uh, it's pretty neat to see. Before we get into that, what was, what were some of those pivotal moments for you guys? Like when you look back in the early, early aughts, like what was, what was anything from, you know, facilities to loans to hiring, like what were some of those big moments? Yeah, and, and, but, and also what, were you just doing the pale ale then? Were you, what beers were you brewing? Like, yeah, so we started with the pale ale and, that, and that's, one you know one brewery one beer is how we started and uh and then we rolled out the headwall alt uh, a couple years into it and then uh, stout came out and then altitude so but for the first few years we had really just one or two beers for the first uh i think after maybe five years we might have had three beers maybe four so it was a slow evolution for sure um as opposed to what you see now as far as availability of beer and beer styles in the uh, in the community of, of brewing in the craft brewing industry um, a lot of styles didn't even exist at that point so yeah that that is in, in and of itself that's a fascinating evolution is just the ingredients that are available now versus 20 years ago have changed dramatically in craft brewing and uh, that's been that's been fun to evolve with that so and it's interesting to see and I think a lot of people forget that because they were you know they've been doing it for five years or so I'm like hey man you know 20 years ago we couldn't get those hops the cool boy hops you know it's like it's awesome and like we didn't have those from the get-go because we just didn't have the ingredients so it, it is it's neat to see and it's neat to keep it's good to have that perspective um, so uh, some of the initial hurdles I mean the biggest hurdles were we really never had a good facility so we started off in a very small uh, I think it was a 4,000 square foot facility and we quickly outgrew that. So five years into it, we ended up moving to a 10,000-ish uh, square foot facility and moving to breweries, no small endeavor. So those were really challenging times. So we moved, we've, we've moved twice. So this is our third location. We've owned, we own this location now. We've previously only rented. So that's been probably one of the largest challenges is just finding a home for us per se. So now we're in a 16,000 square foot building that we own um, in an industrial zone in Conway. So it's the right place for us to be. You know, employment, those are always been challenges, but uh, specific, the, the, the biggest thorn has always been finding a location and moving around. And there's, 
it's not simply the location, but it's just there's uh, there are nuances to moving a brewery, which includes dealing with licensing and, and dealing with the town and, and dealing with a bunch of other issues. So um, it's complex. So those were the, the most challenging issues. Um, we've been in the, at this location since 2014. We actually bought the building in 2013. And we started really opening up the tasting room in 2015. So, um, so in the last five years, we've seen a lot of growth. In, in at least our retail space and our tasting room. I've seen it firsthand watching watching the tasting room kind of explode on the on the weekends and it wasn't just the weekends and now all of a sudden you're open seven days a week and it's it's been great to see a lot of locals but then just your location in Conway you know it's something that's great for the town of Conway because there's just not a lot going on down here. It's uh, there's not a lot and so when we moved into um, like I said, we bought this building in 2013. Prior to that, we were in the same industrial park, but literally across the parking lot in an adjacent industrial building. When we moved into that building, there was nothing over here. I mean, literally, I don't think outside of Green Mountain Rifle Barrel, there was, I don't think, another building that was had anything in it. They were just closed buildings. So we used to go out in the parking lot and and target shoot because there was just no one here. That's how dead the industrial zone was. So you couldn't do that now. I mean, there's CrossFit's right across the way. So it yeah, was- make them run a little faster. It was a completely different environment. So, and it's really exciting to see this go from a, basically a, a dead industrial uh, zone to, to one that's thriving with Carl Thibodeau's across the street. Um, with CrossFit's across the street in a different direction. I mean, every building's pretty much filled up now. Um, it's nice to see. You want to see that with Conway. It just it feels like there's so much potential in this town, in this strip. When everyone's driving up 16 to drive through here, it's like. Well, I mean, all of Conway Village itself, like, there's just not a lot going on. And even now, it's like there's still a lot of empty buildings in Conway Village itself. So as you get up to the four lights, it's you know North Conway is, looks it's thriving. It's exciting to see. Um, it it looks like a, a well inhabited tourist town and but you got to get through Conway Village first and it still needs it needs some work so there's a lot more that can be done in Conway Village itself it does seem like there's a lot of opportunity here I grew up I went to the middle school here yep and yeah you just want that where the majestic theater is that whole strip and yeah no for sure and it's like they've just mountaintop music just took over that facility and that's great that's a fantastic addition to Conway Village um and they've re they've renovated that building it looks great um, so it's, it's going to take time. There's definitely opportunity for sure. Um, the town offices are going to be moving to Conway Village uh, shortly here, so I think that'll help as well. And you guys have diversified yourself quite a bit from going to a one beer, one brewery, um, yeah, philosophy into, you know, you guys did a, a bunch of entertain, you know, venue for entertainment, and you've had a lot of success with that. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's... Uh, there's been a lot of evolution over the years, for sure. Um, the tasting room side of it is pretty cool. So, I mean, making beer, it's great, it's fun, and we've been doing it a while. Um, but it's kind of the same thing over and over again. It's a lot of fun to see the community come in and, to, and for us to do different events and to have different activities here. So that's been really exciting, and we want to do more um, once we get past this coronavirus stuff, hopefully. Um, but, I mean, just, for example, we've had, this winter we had uh, 
uh, some great speakers still uh, here. Phil Carcio was here. George Hurley was here. Um, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm missing a bunch of people, but we've, we, have in, we have music inside all the time. Uh, Henry Barber was here not too long ago, so I mean that was a, that's fantastic. So we, you know we offer this space; it's a communal space, and if people can use it, use it. Um, they're using it, so clearly there's a need in the community. Um, it's it's exciting for us because, like I said, it's the White Mountains are the reason we're here. That's why I, I think most of us here are here year-round and live up here. And the more we can integrate with the community up here and 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 help the community, the, that's just what life is about. You guys have been super helpful with us at Ski the Whites. We did our Backcountry Brew series here. We've done, uh, well, Run the Whites. We, run did, the, yep. we did some pub runs and and then been generous with donations for prizes and awards. And I think that, that it takes a lot. Um, when you, you might not have, it's funny because you always say, I can always get I can always get you beer. But like, again, it all it all costs money at some point. It's not free, like what you're producing and I think that some companies get hit up all the time for stuff and it's it's great you know it's nice to give back to the community but it's also it takes a lot to produce it and just want to just quickly say thanks because it is important to support all the activities that are happening happening here and you want you know when things are good it's easy to just like offload stuff but in the times like right now when there's so much uncertainty but you know also it's certain that people aren't working like Oh yeah, no. It's these are challenging times for sure, and and thank you for uh, the compliment and and recognizing what we do. That's great, um, and it, like I said, that's our philosophy. We 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 are here because this is our community, and that's what it's about. And and hopefully we'll be here after these challenging times too. Um, it's it is a bit of an unknown right now because uh, we just don't know. It's, there's no real data to work on as far as trying to figure our way out of this one. We just kind of have to ride it. So. And that goes for, I think, almost everybody up here in the tourist-based economy. So it'll be challenging times. But everyone can hear the background right now. You guys are doing some bottling. Yeah, so uh, we are bottling. So we uh, ski season ended a little, little abruptly this year. Part of it was it was a little less snow than we desire, and obviously part of it, was, well, the other end of it was the coronavirus shutting down or helping to shut down the ski areas prematurely but we have a lot of beer in tanks so um we were expecting another month of winter you know the the, the process of making beer it's we're easily four to six weeks ahead of of where we're at planning wise um I mean, we've already rolled our summer beer out for example so we were thinking summertime and we've got beer in tanks and you know just getting ready to move forward as we normally do looking anywhere from six weeks to 90 days uh, ahead and um this light switch kind of shut everything off as far as uh, on-premise sales and restaurants shutting down. So uh, we're trying to get beer out of the tanks. We're not really producing more beer. We're not putting more into fermenters at this point. We're just trying to get beer out of tanks that we have already in the works. So, so we've got a skeleton crew here working on taking beer out and putting into can. Uh, I'm sorry, bottles, and, and soon we'll have a canning line running. So, yeah. Talk about well. First, talk about the capacity and break it down. Break it down to like how many, how much you guys produce annually, or like I guess even monthly. Like, what does your production cycle look like, and then what does it look like right now? Because yeah, it's your your outlet for beer. The major like you spend a 
a, a ton of your beer goes to the restaurant business. Yeah, so I mean, sixty percent, roughly sixty percent of what we produce by volume it is draft beer that goes to restaurants or ski areas, for example, bars at ski areas. Um, so, in a, like last year, for example, I think our production was around maybe close to ten thousand barrels, uh, ninety five hundred barrels of beer that we produced. Um, right now, uh, it's, we're looking at it, we're looking to if things hold as they are, they have been the last two weeks. We'll probably be around two thousand barrels this year under the current consumption, given the last month of uh, how the cons- uh, don't lose it here on you, man. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> Hold on, you can edit this, right? Yeah. Sorry. There's just a lot to wrap my head around. It's like, hmm, what are the numbers and where are we at? And um, yeah, so typically, you know, we're around 9,500 barrels a year in production. Right now, we're probably about 20% of that. So these guys are coming in. I got a skeleton crew, two guys working a week, trying to keep exposure minimum to those folks. And um, we're just trying to get beer out of, out of tanks. So hopefully with another two or three or four weeks we'll have more ideas as far as what to introduce into the fermenters like i said it it's a the production of the pale ale for example is about a three and a half week process so we kind of have to have a three to four week uh, notion of what our sales are going to be when we start introducing beer into a fermenter starting the process so right now we're just trying to take stuff out of the process so um and you're, but that's your your job is also a problem solver, and you're pretty you're pretty damn good at that. Uh, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> this is an unusual problem, but you know, I, I think honestly, all we can do is ride this out, and and it comes down to more looking at how is the light switch gonna get flipped back on. So, what is what is the environment gonna look like um, after the fact? Will restaurants open as they were, as if nothing happened, or will there be a slow start to restaurants opening? Um, will it go back to business as usual? These are all unknowns at this point, as is the timeline. So that's the, in my mind, that's the most challenging component of this is the timeline. So it's really open-ended at this point. I don't want to dwell on it too much. I mean, Fair you've, enough. You've got, I don't either. <laughs> no, I won't make you, but I mean, I, I've seen, you've built a family here and what you do is like, it's got to feel, I feel for you because you're directly you know, you've built these relationships with your employers, I mean, employees who depend on this, this is their livelihood, and it's not, but they're not just your employers, they're family, um, so. For know, sure, and so. And, but everyone under, everyone's going through the same scenario, they're navigating the same thing, it doesn't make it any easier. Um, no, it doesn't, but I mean, to that effect, and I think that is the hardest part, is the, uh, is how is this affecting our employees, and, and we'll, when everything comes, is said and done and when we start producing beer on a more normal basis will we have the same group of people working for us and that's that's tough and obviously we want to do the best we can for our employees but knowing that this is open-ended you know i can't is this going to be a two-month event a six-month event a one-year event i i don't know so those are the decisions that are hard to make because you just it's an open timeline yeah and you can only do so much like only so much of this is in in your control and I think everyone understands that so while it's like hard not to take some stuff personally and not to stress out and have that anxiety it's like it is what it is you know like everything 
I always have that mentality. Things could be better. They could be worse. It's just they are what they are. Right, and you just right have now, to, yeah, we have to just ride it out. Yeah. And in, in the interim, just do the best you can for uh, – we're going to do the best we can for our employees. So, But that's, you know, that's all we can do. Um, yeah, so I guess a couple – before we go into more of the mountain stuff, because that's more fun to talk about um, – but talk about some of the problem-solving things. Like, what are some of these other hiccups you've encountered along the way? Like, did you have some critical moments where you felt like this could go either way? The, 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 or did you feel like the, the trajectory of the brewery's always been pretty steady, smooth? Oh, yeah, no, it's never been steady, smooth. I mean, it, sales have been pretty steady, smooth, but there's always hiccups. And um, I don't know, some of them are, 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 are items you can control and some of them are items you can't control. So... Um, you know, for example, our first landlord was slightly uh, delusional, and I had some run-ins with him. So um, th- those are things that were out of my control. So um, as far as things that are in my control, we do the best we can in-house as far as making beer. But, you know, there's, there's always problem solving. And, and even, you know, we've been doing this 22 years. We're always looking to make improvements in how we, in the process, in the process of making beer. We're always looking for efficiency changes. Um, you know, the pale ale's been around 22 years, and we've, we're, you know, we're, I wouldn't say constantly tweaking it, but we're constantly changing the process slightly to make more efficient uh, processes. I mean, what we did 20 years ago was not very efficient and not necessarily the best method for making beer. So we're always looking for improvements, and sometimes those improvements work, and sometimes they don't. We've had some yeast handling issues this past six months that have been really difficult to problem solve, and Jeremy, our production manager and, and head brewer, he and I have been struggling with this one for quite a while, trying to figure it out, and we, we kind of have it narrow, nailed down now, but that really bit us in the in the ass. So For the beer nerds, uh, go into some details on that. Cause. Yeah, I mean, that's one. You know, we don't like to talk about, like I said, we make we always are look for, look for efficiency changes and some sometimes they work really well sometimes they don't this one definitely didn't work so well but we had issues with um to really get into it our beers for example the pale pale ale's bottle condition so we use two different yeast strains to make the beer that's so f- for listeners you're not injecting co2 you're naturally creating it that's right so when we package the beer it's about two-thirds carbonated and the last third of carbonation occurs naturally when we introduce a little bit of partially fermented beer and a different yeast strain into the finished package. Um, it gets capped off, and that little bit of sugar that's added from the grain and the yeast will ferment out and finish that carbonation. So it's a process we've done from day one, which is I think worked well for us and made a fairly unique product for us. Um, it's really difficult to work with because you have to time your, your packaging with your brewing. So you always have that f- partially fermented wort, as they would call it, which is the the uh, carbohydrate slurry that comes from the grain so you it's it's a very it makes it it's a adds a whole nother level of complexity you're saying if you don't package it time it right your beer is either flat or it's going to explode yeah or you just we won't have this sugar at the right yeah at the time for packaging so as far as scheduling it makes it very complicated as far as how much you put in it's like we've got formulas that empirical formulas we've developed over the years that work very well and for the most part our carbonation's fairly consistent um but uh you know we've had some issues with that in the past year as far as uh managing this the second yeast strain that we use for bottle conditioning and that's it's been really frustrating because we can within a batch of beer we can have 
you know, 99% of it tastes fantastic and good. And there's 1% of it. It's just slightly off. And it, and we just, we're struggling as to figure out why. And, um, we finally have it nailed down a little bit, but, um, that one was challenging and, and a lot of loss. Honestly, you lose nights of sleep worrying about stuff like that. And, and I know Jeremy has too. It's like, it's you know, a slow process. It is to a find slow out. I see well, you guys with bottles marked the dates of like, I'm going to test this one, this date, yeah, and this date, and this date, and for this sure. Date. So we do all this testing in house and, you know, and it, honestly, it, these issues generally uh, come about because people reach out. So we'll get a, a consumer complaint in this particular case that, uh, you know, there's about a 12 pack of beer and something doesn't taste right. And I'm like, you know, we go back to the batch and we'll have some leftover bottles for sampling. And we like, we do all these tests and we played it for microbial growth and all this stuff. It all comes back negative. And we're just, this one was, we were struggling with. So it ultimately ended up with, uh, again, it was a yeast management issue as far as we'd changed the process of how we, it, it really comes down to as simple as using a different tank than we normally do. And we've had problems with that tank um, and the amount of dissolved oxygen in the tank. Um, so yeah, it, I can go on and on. I could talk hours about yeast management, but it's really not that exciting unless you're in the world of beer. So, but it, I mean, the thing is at the, at the end of the day, there's, you know, it is problem solving, but there's a bit of, it's a craft, but it is also a bit of an art to it. I mean, it's not, um, you're dealing with a living organism. So, as far as what we do here, and especially with the bottle conditioning, so it's uh, it's a challenge. So we're not always, you know, it's we gotta we gotta work with the living organisms and and and, um, and the yeast, and we gotta, like I said, part of it's science, part of it's art. So I guess yeah, you're right. You've got that creative end, scientific end, and then the small business aspect of it is being a problem solver too, and but trying to obviously forecast some of these things in advance and like you're very practical so i'm sure that you you know you try to be um proactive about any problems that might arise yeah i mean i think it's just like you said it's the nature of anybody who's uh goes in the world of i guess to use the term entrepreneur um you know there's just an inherent amount of problem solving that just comes with that um it's not a cookie cutter business so you know what happens on tomorrow you can't necessarily hand that off to somebody if there's a problem that shows up so you just have to deal with problems yourself you have to be a jack of all trades and master of none to some extent but um, it all falls on your shoulders so well I think we'll we'll kind of finish up the brewery stuff if people are interested in checking out the brewery um, we'll follow Tuckerman Brewery on all social so you can be in the know on what's happening and what plans moving forward you guys are going to make for sure, and and right now we're not doing curbside delivery. We we do sell through distribution, so um, our product is available. For example, in your your Hannafords, uh, some of the WalMarts in the state, um, Demoulis. So that's going to be the avenue that keeps us alive and during these trying times. Um, at some point, we probably will offer some level of curbside service, but at this point, to kind of minimize the exposure to the people that are still working in the brewery, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, we'll stay tuned to see what happens with all this stuff, but um, I can feel for you and I appreciate you just taking the time to just, like get that out there and talk about what's happening at the brewery. It is good to hear that bottle machine going and um, yeah. And, and soon we'll have cans. So they'll pretty soon within a, probably four to six weeks, you should be able to get the pale ale at cans. So, and that's for us, that's exciting. The timing wasn't great. You know, we, we got a quarter million dollar canning line that's, 
sitting out back that's still in a crate and uh, you know and all this kind of went on but uh, we're still gonna install it and when are you gonna get that fully installed to test uh, honestly I suspect this week we'll have it up and running so um, we've been kind of moving tanks around making space for it so and this week it'll get set up give me, some, give me some specs on that canner how much can it can uh, you know I don't e- I don't even know Jeremy would be able to it's tell like you a, that the, it's like a printer how many pages per minute it, it's quite a few it's about a uh, hundred cases an hour type 100 120 ish um but um the cans are it's a it's a pretty cool package for craft beer because it's uh the way it just produces a a more stable product and it has to do with headspace and and dissolved oxygen in the finished product so canned beer in general is a has a lower dissolved oxygen and dissolved oxygen generally is is an enemy for any beer product so uh it, it makes a very stable beer. So we're excited just because of that. We've, we have canned beer here. We've been using a mobile canning line called Ironheart Canning uh, for quite a while. So um, they'll come in, set up for a day, and, and you can use their canning line. And they have techs that come with it and, and run it as well. So it's literally the same exact machine. But uh, so it's, it's no different than what we've been doing if you've come in here and, and bought cans, but we'll actually own it and we'll be running it. And it allows us the flexibility to putting all of our product in cans. Yeah, so you can do your small batch stuff for sure, and that's ultimately that's we want to do more of the small batch and and specialty. So, for example, we did a double IPA this winter that was uh, Jeremy's recipe came out really was really good in my opinion, and uh, so we want to do more stuff like that. So that stuff that's fun. I mean, when you, you know the pale ale's great, and uh, I, I love it, but you know we've done batch after batch after batch. So on the brewing side of it, production side, it's just it becomes a little monotonous to brew the same beer over and over again. And it is our bread and butter, so I'm not complaining. But it's fun to do a smaller batch. Be creative. And you, yeah, you said a creative. A lot of, of your brew, like everyone that works in here, sort of gets to do their their beer, right? Yeah. So everybody who brews was able to do a pilot setup, and we do have a pilot system that uh, we use. So it's we try to involve every brewer as much as possible with recipes and formulation, and even with, for example, the double IPA. You know, that's shared all the. I say it's Jeremy's recipe, but all the brewers are involved in that. So it's, it's a group effort. Um, there's always input, and it's fun. Yeah, it's important to keep, keep things mixed up a little bit. For sure. You never know what, what's going to stick and what stuff you'll want to keep for down the road. And, yeah, and, and I, just learning new techniques. Absolutely, 100%. Because you said that the, the brewery, you know, the craft beer industry is still constantly changing, it's, and they're making new strains of hops and it's, different yeah. additives additives and it's changed tremendously and even just the last five to seven years has changed tremendously so it's it's cool and it's just we've learned techniques and we're always you know keeping our eyes out we're always trying different beers from different breweries to see what's what's new and exciting what are what kind of hops are people using what processes are they using so um it's exciting stuff I i forgot to ask about the hops that you grow here do you have enough to throw in to dry hop or to? So yeah, so the hops we we did our uh, rhizome last year, which is a, a our late fall beer, which is a, which would be our our harvest ale, if you will, um, and we used about ten pounds from the hops that we had. Um, we used I think a total of maybe sixty pounds total for that that particular batch. The other hops came from Maine, the hop yard in Maine, in Gorham, Maine. So we do have, we actually have enough hops to do an entire batch, 40, a 20 barrel batch times two is 40 barrels. So typically, not to get into it too much, but our, 
Brewing is a batch process, so our batch size is about 22 barrels. And what is a barrel? A barrel is 31 U.S. gallons. Um, so a, a typical large keg is, is, is a half of a barrel, 15.5 gallons. So the, the, typically we use barrels as the, as the uh, unit of measure. But uh, I'm going off on a tangent. No, man. it's easy to get lost in the barrels <laughs> when you look at like how many barrels is each brewer. Yeah. It's like the, the standard, industry standard. Right. Like how much beer are you generating? But if you're saying a keg is a half barrel... Yeah, and then a keg is like a hundred is um hundred and twenty eight ounces or something. Or no, it's sorry. about one hundred and twenty pints. One hundred twenty. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. One hundred twenty pints. Yeah. So that makes it so people can start to wrap their head around production. Right. For sure. And and honestly, to give you an idea, so the light switch with uh, the coronavirus stuff and restaurants shutting down and skiers shutting down so rapidly, we have seven hundred kegs of beer sitting at New Hampshire distributors that have no home right now. So that gives you an idea that at some point we're, we're actually trying to figure out what to do with that. There's some distilleries in New England that are uh, distilling the alcohol out of it and using it for sanitizer. So I suspect that'll happen to a good portion of those kegs. Um, but that gives you an idea of the volume of, 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 I think I did the math yesterday. There's 85,000 pounds of pale ale. Sitting. I had no idea that you distill beer to get the alcohol yeah i mean you the base, i know it's just like you can for sure well, yeah, so that's some very expensive hand sanitizer yeah when you think so about it but it's um, there's nothing we'll, we're not making money on it but if we can make it go to use versus just uh getting destroying it at some point yeah um wait what variety were the hops that you're growing so we have uh there's magnum nugget and cascade i think there's three varieties out there so and uh it's honestly the hops are they're cool to have here uh, conceptually. They end up being kind of a pain in the butt because every year, you know, at the beginning of the year, it's like, all right, who wants to work on the hops? And everyone's, you know, I'll get three people jump at it and like, yeah, I'll work on the hops. I'll do the weeding and whatnot. And then it's like as the summer progresses, it's like, where are the three people that were wanted to work on the hops? So I and then in the middle of summer, I find myself out there weeding hops, and I'm just like, I got better things to be doing than weed hops. So. It's kind of a, it's, it's a double-edged sword for me personally, but I, I, I just laugh. Um, that's, like actually, my, that's like my garden come August, and you're like, I can't even see my garden. Right. So uh, it is cool to have, though. And uh, the other thing that's kind of cool is we did, we, worked, we hooked up with Todd Marshall, who's a, a local farmer in town, and he uh, grew barley for us this year, uh, this past summer, which was harvested and then malted up at Maine Malting Company in uh way up in northern maine so the uh summer the uh, first tracks beer that we did this winter which is our winter seasonal was made almost exclusively with um the pale malt that came from locally grown barley so on a personal note that was kind of a cool project to do that was something that we've been at least i've been thinking about doing for years and it was cool to see it come to fruition so we had a we tried a couple of years and it didn't work out. This past year we were able to kind of pull it all together. So, and then you realize how much goes into the agro, just the agricultural end of it. It's just like it, it's it's pretty cool. It's humbling to watch the whole process. So, yeah, when you said that, I was impressed that you could pull that off because getting the reliable source for your grains is 
It's huge, and it's, it's, it's beer on an, and it, it's like the core ingredient. So. Yeah, and it's and that's the thing. It was a gamble. So if, if it turned out like the quality of the grain was poor, which it happens, um, and then it really, as far as when it's malted, it, it's not. Uh, you don't really get the sugars out of it if it's poor grain, and you get a lot of other things you don't want, which are high proteins. What's back? What's the process of malting? So malting is you take, uh, and I've never done it. So there's companies, there's just maltsters out there that this is all they do. So they will take. For example, barley, and it doesn't have to be just barley. You can use other grains, but in this case, barley is the base ingredient for um, most beer. Take barley and you hydrate it, and you allow it to germinate. And so there are you basically allow it to grow. And and in the stored grain itself, there's just long chains of starch, and that's how the sugars are stored for long-term survival of the grain. As it starts to grow, there's some enzymes that activate that start breaking the starch down into simpler sugars and also start making some other um, enzymes that are useful for the plant to grow and actually useful for producing simpler sugars. So the basis of beers is to ultimately get to a simple sugar that is that can be fermented by yeast. And so if you, will, if you malt barley, it starts to break this, uh, these long chains down. And so what they do is they hydrate it, they let it start growing, and then they arrest that uh, growth process by killing it, drying it out. And so you get a, uh, you get a seed that can no longer grow, but, it's, it can then, uh, but it has these enzymes in it that, are, uh, that we can use as a brewer. So we can take this dried grain and then we can, this, this dried malted barley, and we can hydrate it here. And those enzymes actually reactivate. It's not going to grow anything. The plant isn't going to, the seed wouldn't grow, but it will break down sugars even further. So, um, and that's what the, that's what we do is we take the grain, hydrate it. It's called, you know, in the process of, of the mash and at the right, at right temperatures and pHs and, and a few other variables, um, those enzymes activate and start breaking those already somewhat broken down sugars and do further and, um, is uh, enzymes called alpha amylase and beta amylase and a couple other, but those are the two primary ones that will break those sugars down into really simple sugars then, that we can then extract and then add yeast to, and the yeast will digest those sugars. So you can get, so you can get in theory, about 80% extract out of the weight of a grain. So if we have 100 pounds of grain, you can, in theory, get 80 pounds of sugar that's fermentable out of it. So there's losses in the process of what we do or whatnot, but... It goes to show you, you're taking this grain that initially, if you took barley and just threw it in water and tried to ferment it, it wouldn't ferment. So that malting process and then the brewing process that we do, you can really extract a lot of sugar. And that was that was in the first tracks, huh? So the local grain was in the first tracks, and we had a malt analysis done on it. It was really good malt, so it was it was knock on wood, it, it worked out well. So and we were talking about, well, should we do it next year? <laughs> like, well, given everything that's going on, I don't know if we will, but. Uh, it's like, I don't know, we kind of hit a home run the first year. Like, I'd hate to screw up, you know, and uh, not have it work. It's, well, it's pretty special when you can tie stuff in that close to home. For sure. And, it's, uh, and kudos to Todd Marshall. He's a really good guy, and it, uh, he put a lot of effort into it, and it worked out really well. Right there by the conservation area. He's over by, his farm is um, by Paso Conway Road. So the corner of West Side Road and Paso Conway Road. He's got the cattle on the left. And... Um, the actual field that we uh, put the barley in was closer to Center Conway. Gotcha. Well, everyone that comes and recreates 
usually drives by, so it makes you think oh, yeah. a little differently when you're going by the, the cow For pasture. For sure. And we've talked about, you know, he's got hay fields out there. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool someday just to have barley fields? So who knows? Maybe it'll happen down the road. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, now with whatever time we have left, just to chat about the mountains and sure. how your relationship with the mountains has changed since I've known you, you've become quite the runner. Yeah. Tra- you know, trail running. No, seriously, yeah. I think anyone that can throw down Pemi loops and, you know, bigger link-ups like like you've done in the past you know it's been fairly recently that you've really sort of i think i don't know no that is true so i I wouldn't i wouldn't say i throw down pemi loops but i i do like to get out and and enjoy my occasional pemi loop um but uh so there's a bit of history here i i had a a back injury that kind of laid me up for better part of 15 years so i started to recover from that maybe even just I don't know, time all blurs together, but probably three or four, three years ago is when I really started to improve and I was able to get back outside and, um, and pain-free, living without pain and, and able to do activities again. So, so since then, I'm like, if I ever get better, you know, I had this mantra, if I ever started to heal and get better, I would spend, you know, I'm going to take advantage of it. It's, it's kind of a second lease on life. And um, so I've been trying to take as much advantage of that as possible and um the fact that i can actually get out and run i'm just it's been fantastic so i uh, so i get out as as much as i can skiing i've been getting out as much as i can it, it's tough because it's obviously running a business there's time management issues and even if you don't run a business there's always time management issues so that's the challenge with um with i think just part of life um but um yeah, so I try to get out as much as I can, as you know. I've done some stuff with you and got into backcountry skiing just a couple of years ago and got my first set of backcountry skis from Ski the Whites and from you. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. What were some of the winter highlights? This year, honestly, it, this has been a challenging winter, even before the coronavirus stuff came out. Um, uh, we, I've spent a lot of more time at the brewery than I'd like to. I got out a lot um, a lot of late afternoons just doing Sherby runs and uh, a lot of those I'm coming down even with a headlight on, headlamp on but um, that's all right that's the bulk of what I did was maybe 90 minute skin up ski down stuff this winter um, the snow was a little iffy this winter so when it was pretty bad I'd, I'd scoot up to Wildcat and skin up ski down just to get a run in um, I didn't you know my I getting into personal stuff i like endurance stuff i like doing pemi loops stuff like that um longer hiking it's still ultimately a goal of mine to do a hut to hut traverse it's uh, i know it's something you've you've done several times and uh but that's something i still am working up towards and i think one of the problems i have as far as an athlete or uh, a weekend warrior if you were weekend warrior athlete is uh it's just putting in the longer hour um endurance activities in the winter so I can get out and do, like I said, 90 minutes, maybe two hours doing something. But what I really miss is the four or five hour or longer days that I get more of in the summer. I think part of that is just because the daylight's longer and I, and I just maybe have more time in the summer. But in the winter, it's, that's what I tend to lack, are those longer days as far as what I get out and as far as getting out and doing stuff. But It's a cycle, the winter stuff. I, don't, I haven't figured it out yet because I, th- I think it is all like daylight related. It's, and it's a cycle too, where your body just needs—you know—we go pretty hard in the summertime with the longer days, and and then it just sort of wanes down with the weather, the temperature, your motivation goes down a little bit. Yeah, and I, I agree with all that. I think winters are, are tough. I think there's a psychological component to it as well. Just cold weather and and dark, 
it's hard to get out early and it's hard to get out and then the days are short so um and for whatever reason it just seems like winters are busier for i don't know why as far as my personal work schedule but but no complaints i mean i got it's out all of, tied in it's all tied in the operating thing is like a, a part of ski culture for sure uh, like i said we had a lot of great events this winter and um you know it's exciting stuff um i had some great days on the sherby though i can't i don't know i probably did the sherby 20 maybe two dozen times this this winter or something like that so um i had a couple really bad days you know just those bulletproof days it's just wind scoured but uh but you know that's the advantage of living up here is like you can kind of pick and choose if if you can get out it's like if you know the, you know you got to pay attention to the local weather and see what's going on and it's like all right you know what i'm I know it's really crappy down here, but I bet it's not too bad up at uh, Pinkham Notch. And so I think that's part of the reason I ended up going to Pinkham Notch and, and skinning up Wildcat, too. It's just the snow was a little bit better, lower down. Like, I never made it to um, the, the villa this year. And I did the new glades that were cut over in um, off of 113, I never made it out. And I think, you know, the few times that I talked to people about getting out, just the snow wasn't really conducive to to that. No, the glades didn't. Glades didn't produce like they did last year. The last year was phenomenal. So it's like we were, we all got spoiled. We we did on that on the same note. You know, you could always get into Tuckerman Ravine and and the Sherby, like you're saying, is the snow's great. I got the the one you're talking about off 113 Hypnosis Glade. Hiller and I did that one day, one night. It was fun, but it was like still not not as filled in as it could have been. And I don't know if it. That place is going to be very fickle just based on the aspect. And yeah, I live in Madison, so it's right by my house. And I had all these, when I moved there, I just looked at all these little zones and right where you were, because I used to live in your place right. on Rockhouse Mountain. Rockhouse Mountain has this really cool line on the eastern side of it, but you need snow, yeah. snow for that. And it, I, I equate that to being like a little Sherby, um, this old access road, but you got to bushwhack to get to it. And parking, parking is not quite as easy as it could be another potential zone for granite backcountry to to hit up um but you know it's like man just getting out and being consistent and there's all these principles and you know stuff that across the board make all the difference so hopefully you know with the summer just like almost with a ski season shutting down it makes it easier for me to focus on the summer stuff well the transition was kind of brought you know brought on us you know what i mean normally ski season kind of lingers and 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 you take advantage of it but this year everything's just shut down so and and i guess it it needs to be so like you said it's it's you could you just need to adapt and and be forward looking and forward thinking and so the next thing is trail running in my mind so i heard you're doing run strong am i doing you, you should be uh i'm I'm about a week behind, so I know it started Monday. So you can't, you're Hillary, not, I, I w- <laughs> you're not that behind. It's I'm not that behind, but my goal was to actually to get on it on Monday. But you know, it's every day is a slightly different, uh, slightly different day now. I get phone calls, and uh, just the business still takes priority. So understandable, but you know, you got to look out for number one. So hopefully, take care of yourself. And I know it's hard to in these difficult times to like motivate or find make time for yourself but it's it's really important because then it lets you do the best job you can do and puts you in a better mind frame after before doing a lot of this stuff like podcasts sometimes i'm in a mood and i just don't want to deal with it but i mean just going for like a 20 minute run at least gets the blood flowing and makes you 
it, it fires the endorphins, makes you feel a little better about I, situations. I, I agree with that. And uh, that's sage advice from, from Andrew that I think all of us can uh, adhere to in these tough times or should listen to. So, um, yeah, I mean, just you got to clear the mind. And so getting outside, like you said, even if it's 20 minutes, does make a big difference. Uh, I go over to Pasa Conway Road a lot. Just It's still gated, so I feel like you might see me running there quite a bit. So the trails aren't quite there yet, but um, it's important. And it's easy to get wrapped up in the headspace of all this. Mm-hmm. Well, again, I appreciate it. it. It means a lot. It's it's important to be honest and candid about life and business ownership. And when you go through these waves of highs and lows, it's not it's not great. So, you know, there's a lot of times it's not great, and it's hard to get on a mic and talk about stuff when things aren't in your going your favor. Much like Instagram, it's not fun to post the negative, the stuff that's the hardships and negative stuff. But it's all it's important because it's relatable and it's real life and people need to understand what's the transparency of what's really happening. So thanks for all you've done and continue to do. I know we'll get out of this. Uh, we'll make it out and we'll be back up and running and whatever we can do to, you know, keep this relationship going, we'll make it happen. We have a really good community and again, appreciate everything you've done for the, for the, um, Mount Washington Valley. Well, thank you. And uh, like you said, we'll get through this. Uh, th- life might be different, but that's all right. We'll just have to evolve. Yeah, get that canning machine going. Let's get some cool, like, creative stuff going, small batches. I, and I get the told cur- Jeremy. And get I'm, the curbside going. I told Jeremy, I'm like, look, we're going to get the canning line going, a bunch of let's get it done. And then after that, I think I might have a lot of time off. So <laughs> you guys will be busy. I won't. So it'll work out. All right. Well, thanks again, Nick. Take care. And, uh, yeah, keep your head up. Thank you, Andrew.